0: Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. It's great to be with you in Thornton. My family normally is at the Boulder campus, but I'm delighted to see each of you here today. And Whitney, thank you for sharing your story. It's, It's so encouraging for us to hear the stories of God's people and the way that God has ministered to his people throughout history in their time of need. And Whitney's example of sharing how God met her in a time of loneliness and need is a great reminder for us of, one, who we desire to be as a church at Calvary, of what it means is we're forming a new campus here in Thornton and creating a place where people who might walk in for the very first time would feel welcome and would feel ministered to and cared for and be reminded of the love of God for them as they arrive here. It's also a reminder for us of why we are in a series together called Beyond Blue. Because we recognize that loneliness, sorrow, despair, discouragement has been a reality in the lives of God's people throughout history. Maybe even especially in the lives of God's people that they have felt despair at times, despondency, discouragement. And so for the month of January, we are looking together through the lens of the Bible of how God has met people in the midst of their need, of how he has revealed himself to them in a season of discouragement in their life, in a season of despair, and has brought hope to them. Part of our prayer for this series is that we would actually normalize together the reality of adversity maybe even anxiety that exists in our lives. That sorrow and sadness is actually not out of the ordinary, but is a common occurrence. And as we read the Bible, is a common occurrence throughout the history of God's people. And our goal for this series is not only that we would normalize those experiences, but that we would do our best to equip each other to be able to confront them when they come to our lives and when we face them in our days. There are, to be fair, a number of ways to confront these issues. At times, it is needed um, to perhaps consult the competent care of a medical doctor when we face clinical depression. Perhaps it's a reality in our life that we need to have a consistent visit with a licensed professional counselor to help us work through the struggles that we're facing or the feelings that we're encountering. But in our time together through this series, we want to look at these issues through the lens of the Bible, take a spiritual perspective on the needs that we face. That doesn't diminish the reality of competent professional care, but we want to see what What the lens of the Bible says about the reality of suffering. We want to learn together about how God's word helps us to confront grief and sorrow, and how God's people have grappled with worry and despair, but in the midst of that, have found hope. How can we have hope in the middle of hardship? Is it even possible? If you have yours with you, open your Bible with me to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Probably the easiest way to find Lamentations is to use the table of contents that God put in the front of your Bible. <laughs> Lamentations is after a couple of big books the book of Isaiah, the book of Jeremiah. Because of where it lands in the Bible right after the book of Jeremiah and because it most likely chronologically occurs after the events of the book of Jeremiah, many scholars believe that the author of Lamentations is the prophet Jeremiah. But Lamentations is anonymous, we don't know for sure, but it certainly describes the events that the book of Jeremiah actually prophesies about. Lamentations is a short book. It's only five chapters, and each chapter is sort of a standalone poem written as a response to the trauma that had occurred in the nation of Israel, which are described for us in the very final chapter of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 52. Verse 12 and 13 give us kind of a summary of what occurred. It says, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, that was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard who served the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem, and he burned the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. This all happened about 600 years before Jesus was born in 587 BC. The Babylonian Empire invaded and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, leveled it, including the temple, which this text describes as the house of the Lord. If you were with us this fall for our study in the book of Hebrews, you know how important the temple was. The house of God was. It was the center of the worship of the people of God. It was the place where the presence of God dwelt on the earth. It was the place where the sins of God's people were atoned for by the priests. And it had been burned, totally destroyed. How could that even happen? God's people had been disobeying God's commands for centuries turning their back on him god had made a covenant with them and it was sort of a two-way covenant i'm faithful to you and you will be faithful to me and the and the people of god didn't uphold their end of the promise there were a series of kings and leaders who had done what was evil in the eyes of god and the people had been warned by the prophet jeremiah and by others that if they did not repent and turn their hearts back to God, that this would happen. That they would suffer God's judgment under the hands of the Babylonian empire. And they didn't listen to repeated, over and over again, warnings from God. And so through the Babylonians, God punished his people by destroying the city and then sending them into exile. Now we should be careful as we look at this Old Testament account of God executing justice on his people. Because if we're not careful, we can transfer that idea of of God punishing his people through suffering into our lives today. And think that any time we suffer, it must mean that God is punishing us. If we have placed our faith in Jesus, if we have asked Jesus to forgive us of our sins then all of God's punishment has been poured out on Christ instead of us. That was what Christ did for us on the cross. Jesus took on the wrath of God for us. And so we should be careful to not assume that any time we experience suffering, that God is angry with us. He poured out his justice on the Son of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't experience consequences for our decisions in our day-to-day lives. It doesn't mean that if we sin, that there might not be consequences to that. But we should be careful to not confuse that as God's anger and justice being poured out on us, as it was in this case. This was a unique case where God had continually called his people to repentance. And they had disobeyed. And it was a brutal outcome. Before the city had been invaded and destroyed, it had been surrounded by the Babylonian army. And it was under siege for nearly two years, the walls of the city surrounded by this army. And so the people who lived inside of its walls experienced all of the horrors of war for years. Death and disease were common, and then the city was destroyed. And it was devastating. This was the land that God had promised to their forefather Abraham that he had given to God's people. This was the city that the great King David had built. This temple was the one that had been constructed by his son Solomon. And it had stood for 500 years. And now it was gone. Can you imagine the emotions that God's people felt in this moment it was all lost the trauma and the despondency that they must have felt the confusion about where god was in the midst of this lamentations doesn't pull any punches about the emotions that they felt about the the ways that they responded to this tragedy the whole book is just filled with the bitter cry of god's people Here's just an example of some of the language that Lamentations uses in chapter 3, verse 16. The author takes on sort of the personal feelings of trauma that he was experiencing and he cries out directly to God and says of God, this this is what God had done to him. God has made my teeth grind on gravel And made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. And so has my hope from the Lord. That's pretty stark. A pretty severe recognition of what has occurred in the life of God's people. And... This is one of the reasons why I love the book of Lamentations. Because it gives words to the suffering. It's real. It's raw. Sometimes it's dark in its description of pain and sorrow. Through these five poems that respond to the destruction of the city, it doesn't pull any punches, and there's no platitudes, and it isn't filled with cliches. It's real and raw. And there's a lesson for us here that when we're suffering, it's important to recognize what is real and make an honest assessment of our situation and try to give words to it. For some of us to just be able to say, I'm suffering, I'm not okay today. Or to sometimes raise our hand and say, I think I might be depressed and I need help. I'm sad, I'm heartbroken whatever we're feeling, to not gloss over it with, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm doing well. Recognizing what's real helps us on the road to healing. But the truth is, it can be hard to describe how we're feeling when we're hurting. And Lamentations helps us. By giving words to those of us who are grieving and suffering, because it's so real and raw in its language, it, it can be a big help to us. And we might turn to it when we don't know what else to say or we don't know how to describe what we're feeling. And so I think it's one of the most helpful books in the Bible for those of us who are grieving, who feel pain and sorrow but don't quite know how to give words to what exactly it is that we're experiencing. Even the way Lamentations is structured, even the way that the poems are composed... Communicate something to us about suffering. The five poems each have 22 stanzas. And the first four poems in the book of Lamentations are acrostics, which just means they're alphabetical. The first word of each stanza goes in alphabetical order. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. If these were English poems, there'd be 26 stanzas, and they would go alphabetically from A to Z. The idea here that they cover every letter of the alphabet is almost like it's describing suffering in all of its fullness, from A to Z. Every experience, every emotion that we feel in the midst of adversity is explained here in this alphabetical structure. Its structure also, I think, tries to bring order into what was chaotic. The total destruction of this city but by the final chapter, chapter 5, the author abandons that ordered alphabetical structure. There's still 22 stanzas, but it's not an alphabetical order. And it's almost as if to say, I, I can't bring any more order to this chaos. I just can't make sense anymore of what's happened. And those of us who have walked through seasons of sorrow can resonate with that idea that just as we feel like perhaps we've brought order to what was chaotic beforehand, Perhaps we think, okay, my life is back to normal. Suddenly grief and sorrow throws us a curveball and it's, it's all a mess again. It feels like it's all fallen apart. But the beautiful thing about Lamentations, even in all of its darkness and despair, is that there is hope. Right in the middle of it, in chapter three, in the center of the book is the one spot in Lamentations that includes a glimmer of hope. The author even structures the third poem uniquely. It still has 22 stanzas, but every verse in each stanza is alphabetical. So it's like AAA, BBB, CCC. As if to draw attention to this third chapter, shining a light on the central portion of this book, as if to say, look here, You can find hope here. This is common in Hebrew poetry that the climax of the poem is in the center rather than in the conclusion like we're used to, right there in the middle. And it's a good reminder for us that it is possible to find hope in the middle of hardship. The language totally shifts right in the middle of chapter 3. Right after those verses that we read, the author says, I remember my affliction and my wanderings, in verse 19, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. He says, I remember my affliction and my wanderings. He uses this term affliction a lot through the book of Lamentations often describing the affliction that God has brought upon him and his people. He remembers his wanderings, how, how he just felt wayward in the midst of suffering. He says the wormwood and the gall, wormwood was a bitter herb that was taken and turned into gall, which was a substance that you could mix with liquid to drink and dull the pain Jesus was offered gall mixed with wine when he was on the cross, but because it was a pain reliever, he refused it. But the author, in the midst of all of his sorrow, remembered this, this bitterness, this bitter taste in his mouth. How much does that describe the reality of suffering when you've been through it that you, you just feel bitter on the inside and, and want to spit it out? But, This I call to mind, the author says, and therefore I have hope. This is a conscious decision by the sufferer to to cling to what is true, to call something to mind and have hope in the midst of hardship. He purposely and emphatically calls it to mind, an act of the will to remember what is true. And even though he may feel despondent, He knows that in the midst of his despair, he must call on something that he can count on, something that's unchanging. When our world is crumbling, we need to bring to mind the things that we know to be true. That's where we find hope. But the truth is there are so many other things that we try, that we try to have hope in in the midst of hardship. What do we most often call to mind in the midst of heartache? Or what do we call on? Sometimes we call on coping mechanisms. Whether it's substance abuse, maybe it's sex or spending. Just the thrill of something or something to dull the pain so that either we feel something because we don't feel anything or we feel something different than the pain and the sorrow. We often call on coping mechanisms in the midst of sorrow i think we often cling to a hope that there might be a change in our circumstance that our life just might go back to normal to the way that it was before whatever happened happened sometimes we just try to avoid the present reality and escape from what we feel rather than recognize what's real in our life We often call on cliches, don't we? We just try to say things that we hope will gloss over the reality of pain. I'm sure I've uttered some unhelpful cliches in my time. You know, everything will get better, it'll be okay. God needed them more than we did. I know exactly how you feel. the Lord never gives us more than we can handle. Or don't be sad. We should remember as we desire to minister and come alongside those who are hurting that our aim is not to eliminate sadness from the lives of other people. Sadness is a real important feeling, something that we called to live in and to journey through and not just to get over as quickly as possible. And there are things that happen in our life that are worthy of being sad and sorrowful about. My family lives in the town of Superior. And we were in California when the Marshall Fire started and got the evacuation call on our cell phones because our home was in the evacuation zone. And we watched heartbroken streaming on the internet as homes in our neighborhood were burning on television we could see homes on our street burning and we spent thursday night sleepless but certain that our home had been lost just based on the proximity of of where the fire went and the homes that we saw that had burned friday morning One of our neighbors had hiked in and sent us a picture of our house still standing, and it was stunning. Two doors down from us uh, is destroyed, and our house is on a corner. The street we're on is El Dorado Drive, and 25 homes on El Dorado are just gone. Gone. A couple weeks ago, Lindsay was driving around with our um, six year old son Beckett, and they drove through a part of Louisville that we regularly drive by, but hadn't since the fire had burned, and this portion of Louisville is particularly devastating. And Beckett said to Lindsay, Mommy, this makes me really sad. That's right. These kinds of things should make us sad. And we shouldn't try to run from the sadness or the sorrow or just try to get over it. But we should allow God to minister to us in the midst of sorrow and loss and lament what has occurred. This is why lamentations can be so helpful for us because it can give language to devastation, to trauma, to be able to say, this is sorrowful. But not to lose sight in the midst of that sorrow that we can have hope Hope is different, though, than happiness. And the goal is not for us to say, stop being sad, start being happy. But perhaps for us to say, let's be sad. Let's be sorrowful when it's warranted. But let's also cling to hope. So what does our author call to mind? What does he cling to in the midst of sorrow? Look at verse 22. Begins by saying, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The first thing our author calls to mind is that God's love never stops. Even if we're suffering, God's love never stops. Steadfast means unmoving, unwavering, unchanging, steady and stable, that we can count on it. It doesn't ebb and flow, there is no condition to the love of God. That's remarkable because, remember, this destruction of the city occurred because of God executing his justice on his people, of punishing them for their sins. And yet, the author says, God's love never stops, even in the midst of his justice. Even when God is judging his people for their sin, God didn't stop loving them the steadfast love of the lord never ceases the love of god is a fundamental part of his character it cannot stop it has always existed it is who he is for all of eternity and he has shared love for all eternity with his son with the holy spirit and the overflow of their love for one another was the creation of the world and the creation of you and me That God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit wanted to share the love that they have shared forever and ever with us. And their collective plan was to redeem a people for themselves through the death of the Son of God, Jesus, so that those people might share the love of God forever, for all of eternity. And we can count on it. God's love never stops. But we can wonder about God's love for us when life is hard, can't we? It can feel as though it's it stopped. Like maybe the love of God has run out. Does he still love us? How could this happen? The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can stop the love of God. Not heartbreak, not sorrow, not anxiety or adversity, Not depression nor despondency. God's love never stops. The author goes on in the second part of verse 22 and says, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He also calls this to mind, that God's mercy never ends. The mercy of God is an expression, a tangible one, of His love for us. That He cares for us. That he has compassion on us in the midst of pain. That he provides for us. And he does all of that. He cares. He has compassion. He provides for us when we don't deserve it. That's what mercy is. That we receive what we don't deserve from God. And there is an unlimited supply of mercy. We never run out of it. His mercy never ends because it's the overflow of his love. Look at how the apostle Paul links God's mercy and God's love in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verses 4 to 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. God's mercy is because of his great love for us. And this kind of mercy that Paul describes is the greatest act of mercy there is, a spiritual mercy of of God making us alive together by Christ, by saving us from our sins through the work of Jesus on the cross. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, because of our sin, God made us alive because of his mercy, as the overflow of his mercy love and God is merciful to us in so many ways and provides for us in countless ways when we're suffering and it's good to be reminded that God's mercy never ends because when we're hurting there's nothing we need more than God's mercy how often do we say I just don't know if I can make it through today but our author says God's mercies are new every morning if we feel like that, I just don't know that I can take any more today. Let's be reminded that the mercies of God are new tomorrow. That there are new mercies for us to be able to meet whatever challenges, whatever tragedies we may meet tomorrow. God's mercies are new every morning. His mercy never ends. We spend so much time worrying about what tomorrow may bring when God encourages us To just focus as much as possible on today because his mercy is enough for us. Jesus talked about this in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 34 when he said, Don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The mercies of God are new tomorrow. God's love never stops, God's mercy never ends. And he is always faithful. Our author says, Great is your faithfulness. God is always faithful, even when it might not feel like it. And sometimes we have to speak truth to ourselves to remind ourselves of what is true about God. When it doesn't feel like it, we have to fight to remind ourselves that God is faithful. We have to call it to mind. Do you notice the change in language that the author uses? He talks about God in the third person when he says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. But then when he talks about his faithfulness, he speaks to God directly, personally. He says, great is your faithfulness. We need to be reminded that in the middle of hardship, our God is personal not distant or disinterested in us or what's happening in our life he knows that we're suffering and god knows what it is to suffer jesus is a man of sorrows who is familiar with grief so we do not serve a god who is unfamiliar with pain but he is faithful in it with us And so we can be reminded that we are not alone. He is always faithful. We need to call these things to mind in the midst of sorrow. We need to remind each other about God's love, mercy, and faithfulness when we're struggling. God's love never stops, God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful. Can we hope in that? We can hope in God when we're in the middle of hardship. Clinging to hope in God is so much better than clinging to lesser things. Look at how our author closes this stanza in verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. I won't hope in lesser things. I won't hope in a change in circumstance. I won't hope in coping mechanisms. I won't hope in cliches. I will hope in the unchanging character of God. Because the Lord is my portion. That simply means God is enough. When everything else is empty, when we've come to the end of ourselves and the end of whatever we're feeling in our life, we can be reminded that God is enough. The Lord is my portion says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Maybe the greatest lesson we learn in suffering is that we can hope in God. I wish we could learn that lesson on vacation. I wish we could learn that lesson in the midst of extraordinary health or abundance or great wealth. But we all know it to be true, whether or not we like it, that suffering is the greatest teacher. And the greatest lesson we can learn in the midst of it is that we can hope in God when there's nothing else to hope in. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful. He is enough. Let us hope in Him. In a moment, the worship team's gonna come and we're gonna sing a song that was inspired by these words. You've probably heard it and you're familiar with it Great is Thy Faithfulness. It was written by Thomas Chisholm in 1923, and he wrote it as a reflection back on his life. It's not a hymn that was written in response, like many hymns were, to some sort of spiritual mountaintop experience, but rather it was his response to the faithfulness of God over a lifetime and for Thomas his life had been a series of difficulties and disappointments he was first a school teacher and then a newspaper editor and he suffered a breakdown after his mother's death and he could not continue working later he found faith in Jesus and became an ordained minister but because of his poor health he left the ministry after only a year And yet, near the age of 60, he wrote the words to this great hymn, and reflecting upon it, said, My income has never been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years which has followed me on until now. But I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that He has given me many wonderful displays of His providing care, which have filled me with astonishing gratefulness. God's love never stops. God's mercy never ends. He is always faithful. God, we're grateful that You are present with us. Whatever we've brought here today, God, whether we're celebrating Whether we're suffering, you are present with us and we give you thanks, God, that you are near to us. If we're brokenhearted, you know what it is to be brokenhearted, God. And you promise to minister to us and to uphold us in the midst of it. I pray for my friends here today that they might cling to hope in God in the midst of hardship whether they find hardship today or in the days ahead. I pray, God, as your people, that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us call to mind what is true when we suffer. That you would strengthen us with hope in you, God. The unchanging one. The one who never fails, who never leaves us alone, who is always with us. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, you are with us. And you bring us strength and courage and help and peace. And so we ask for it, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.